Thanks, Frank. Morning, everybody. Morning. And a special welcome to uh, those of you who have come down for um, Alba's dedication. Um, the Scottish contingent particularly, I, I only know about three ministers in Scotland, but Malcolm Round at St Mungo's I've known for longer than any of them. So, small world. Um, we're going to be thinking a little bit about what a small world it is today, but I wanted to remind you, because I'm sure we all you know, regularly talk about um, William Norman Ewer, who was a journalist for the Daily Herald in the 1920s. Um, just the other day, we were probably chatting about him, weren't we? Um, so he went by the nickname Trilby, and um, it's a fascinating character, because actually he, he was probably a spy for the Russians. He had all sorts of interesting things going on in his life. Uh, but he's best known now for a little bit of doggerel that he slipped into one of his columns. Because he wrote in one of his columns, How odd of God to choose the Jews. Which was kind of like, just like put it out there. I don't know why he did it, whether it was anti-Semitic or whether he just thought it was humorous. But how odd of God to choose the Jews. And various people wrote in with various suggestions like, How strange of man to change the plan, which I thought was quite clever. Um, but the best one was the American humorist, a guy called Leo Roston, who, who wrote back. Um, and what he did was he, he used the, Gentile, uh, the, Jew, the Hebrew Yiddish word for Gentiles, which is us, basically, um, which is goyim. So he, he wrote back and he said, not odd of God, goyim annoyim, which I thought was brilliant. It's fantastic. But it's really good because it reminds us of the, the Jewish racial boast which is given in scripture, which is reinforced through Jewish history. I mean, the, the survival of the Jewish uh, people is a miracle that really points to the existence of God in many ways. They don't have a homeland for 1,500 years, been persecuted almost everywhere they've gone, and yet there's still this incredibly strong uh, ethnic and racial identity. But it just reminds us that they are, according to scripture, the chosen people. And because of that, the Jews took incredible pride in being chosen. They were called to be holy, to be separate, to be different. And the danger, of course, whenever you do that, is that you look at the people who aren't chosen and therefore don't live differently, distinctively, or, or in a holy way. You look at them and you look down upon them. And that, in many ways, is what Jesus is dealing with as he comes to preach the gospel. Because from the beginning, when God called Abraham and said, through you, I'm going to save the world... What he said was, I will bless you and make you a blessing and all nations will be blessed through you. So in the, in the Old Testament, there's this tension that keeps running between Israel knowing that they were called to be holy and looking at all the pagan nations around them and seeing how badly they were messing up and in their idolatry and their immorality and, and feeling kind of morally superior to them all the time. And again and again and again, the Lord has to sort of say to them, now don't forget the plan. The plan, the plan is actually that I'm going to save all nations through you. So the prophet Isaiah says, you know, it's too small a thing for you to be a light to Israel. I'm going to make you, my savior, a light to the Gentiles as well. There's, there's this theme that actually, although the surrounding nations were often living lives that, that God couldn't commend, that yet he was going to use Israel to save them. Um, it, it's, it's this really powerful thought. In Romans chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul says that um, the truth about God has been made plain, so people without excuse, but men and women in their hardness of heart are turned away from God. They want to live by their own rules. They've rejected God, and so they give themselves over to all sorts of immorality. And any Jew hearing that would have gone, that's so true. 
and those terrible pagans and the terrible lifestyles that they have. And then in chapter 2, and he says, and we're the same, aren't we? As the Jewish people, we're exactly the same. You know, we've, all the things that we've got more light, we've been given the law, we know what we should be doing, but we're not doing it. And the, the reason he has to say that is because there's this terrible danger that, that we, whenever we come across anyone or anything that is other, we fear it, we distance ourselves from it, and ultimately we reject it. And of course, that's always the tactic of the terrorist. You know, after that obscenity that we saw on London Bridge, the right response is actually to, to hate the evil that's done, to pray for people that are so twisted in their minds, but not give them the satisfaction of fueling a race or religious war. And other people will jump on it and exploit it and use it. And don't you think that's probably what the terrorists want? They want to provoke a conflict. They want to provoke a war. We find it in ourselves that when something's different, whether somebody's of a different creed, class, or color, we find it in ourselves so often that we, we treat them with suspicion. And today's passage is really about that. It's very powerful. Um, and we're going to see some of these familiar passages from a very different light over the next few weeks. Now, I, I think um, uh, one of the great comforts for me from the Bible is that the people in the Bible are an absolute mess, just like us. Uh, we heard last week from Hebrews chapter 11, which is the great passage about faith. Um, Gareth was reminding us that, that the faith that God looks for is a faith that, that looks ahead, that isn't looking at itself, isn't looking at its own, its own accomplishments or its own righteousness, but is looking ahead and saying, God is so good, and, and I know that God is good, and that he promises good, and I'm going to put my faith and trust in that. Um, Hebrews 11 is a total whitewash when you look at it. And you read through the stories, and you see all the people that are mentioned. Everything's incredibly positive. And then you go back into the Old Testament, and you read their actual stories, and you see all the faults and failings that they have. And that's the way the New Testament often looks at people with faith. It's that somehow our faith just taps us into a forgiveness from God, a fresh start, a cleansing. It washes away all that's wrong so that when God looks at us, he, he, just, he just sees the image of his son Jesus. And these Christmas passages, they're going to be incredibly familiar, but we're going to try and look at them from a slightly different angle. Because there's a really interesting picture that emerges that time and time again, God comes to and works through the wrong people. He works through the outsiders, he works through the old, he works through the poor, he works through the young. He doesn't work through the predictable or the powerful. It says in, in that Hebrews 11 passage, as we looked at last week, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And part of what we're trying to say over these few weeks is God is not ashamed to be called your God. Whatever you've done in your life, whatever background you have, whatever mess you've made, God is not ashamed to be called your God if you put your faith and trust in him and not in yourself. God is not ashamed to be called your God. And in the Christmas stories, we see a load of people that you'd think God would not want to commend, but he actually welcomes them into the story and he welcomes them into the family. Now, um, Matthew's Gospel, which I'm sure you can find for yourself because it's the first book of the New Testament, but Matthew's Gospel um, starts in an incredibly Jewish kind of way. It's, it's, it's the most Jewish of all four of the Gospels that we've got. And chapter one is all set up to prove to any Jew who is reading it that Jesus is the descendant of David and therefore the true king of Israel. 
And he does one of those things that often we skip over because it's full of names that we don't really recognize. It's a genealogy, the family tree of Jesus, but actually it's very cleverly constructed. It's, it skips over various generations when they're not useful to the point he's trying to make. He's got a real theological point about how history has been leading up to Jesus, and Jesus is the true king of Israel, the real descendant of David, and it comes up, and he mentions at the end, he mentions Mary. Now, to us, that doesn't really make us think too much about it, but he's making the point that Jesus is the son of Mary is not the son of Joseph. He's the adopted son of Joseph. This, this Jesus is actually God incarnate, born into this world as one of God's great miracles. But in the genealogy, he also includes four other women. Now, in a Jewish culture, that's pretty unusual already. In those days, that was unusual. But what makes it even more surprising that each of the other four women that are mentioned are morally suspect or, in some way, slightly dubious. So you have Tamar, um, Tamar was, um, I think we can put him on the screen actually, the next slide. Um, Tamar was in the story of Judah and um, she'd been widowed and uh, in her widowhood her father-in-law should have provided for her to be married to one of his younger sons but he didn't so she posed as a prostitute, seduced her father-in-law in order to get justice. The Bible's not commending this by the way. It just kind of points out that sometimes desperate people do desperate things, and that was her story. And then after that, you have Rahab, the prostitute, an actual prostitute, Canaanite, who defected from the Canaanites at Jericho to join the kingdom of Israel. And then you have Ruth, um, another foreigner, who refused to go back to her, um, her own family and her own country, stayed with her mother-in-law, and again forced herself into the community of Israel. Then you've got Bathsheba, she's not even mentioned by name, it actually says whose mother had been Uriah's wife, in other words, pointing out that this is a woman who was forced into adultery with the king. I mean, these are four quite interesting characters, and they're put in the story of Jesus. And it could be that Matthew has done that just so that you know, the rumors about Mary would be countered. Because you know, some people would jump on the fact that Mary was an unmarried mother, and would come to the obvious conclusion and would therefore think God would never use anybody like that, so he, they would be immediately closed down to message. And probably Matthew's just stuck it in there so that he's making that point and getting people ready for what they might have heard about Mary. But in a bigger sense, what he's saying is that God doesn't judge as we judge. God sees beyond, and despite people's broken and complex backgrounds, God is quite happy to include them in the story and in the family. And what we're looking at today is we're looking at a different group of people, the Magi, who in many ways are quite unusual and you would imagine they would be rejected from God from inclusion. So I'm just going to run through, through three reasons why that might be so. God is not ashamed to be called our God. So let's look at the, uh, the, the Magi. Go to the next slide, please. Right, the Magi could easily have been rejected because of their religious origin. They're magi. You don't really know what that means. It's pretty close to the word magician. Uh, the magi were a priestly caste in Persia. They were associated with the religion of Zoroastrianism, which had been around for a few centuries, but they'd mingled in with it some Babylonian stuff about astrology, which is trying to define the future from looking at the stars, demonology, which is tapping into unclean spirits, uh, spells, magical incantations, and that sort of thing. 
Given that the Jews were warned against anything like spiritualism, mediums, fortune-telling, anything like that, any Jew would have run a mile from people like this. You know, they, these, they're probably like um, medieval alchemists. Like they're dabbling in anything and everything and probably a load of stuff they shouldn't be dabbling in. That's where they're coming from. Then there's their racial background. I just mentioned that they came from Persia. They came from the area generally known as, as Babylon historically. From the beginning of the Old Testament with Babel right the way through to the book of Revelation. So from Genesis to Revelation, Babel to Babylon, same word. That is not a good place in Bible history. That was the place that, that was the height of mankind's rebellion against God. That was the place from which came the destructive nation that destroyed the temple, that carried all of the um, leaders off to exile, that broke the people of God and, and reduced them through the Old Testament history. And that's where they came from. And by the way, it's about one of the few things we do know about them. I know you're all going to be singing We Three Kings in the next few weeks, but there weren't three of them, they weren't kings. Other than that, Everything's accurate. They were magi from the east. We know they came from there. Um, interesting, we don't really know anything about the magi in terms of their names or the number of them. The only reason we in the west have said there were three is because they brought three gifts, it seems. Um, and then we named them later and, you know, Melchior, Casper, and Balthazar, is that right? Yeah, looking at Tom. Um, in the eastern tradition, apparently, so the eastern churches, there are 12 of them. Nobody knows what they were called because nobody can remember 12 names in a row. But they certainly weren't from the right place. Finally, um, they were associated with royalty. Now, that might sound good to you, but let's put yourself into the context of most people in Israel at the time. The Magi were religious and scientific advisors at court. So they would have been very, very comfortable in the court of King Herod. Um, but being comfortable in the court of King Herod makes you suspect to most Jews. Because Herod is this fascinating character. Um, he's a really interesting guy, actually. Um, the Roman emperors tried to revive the Olympic Games. And um, Herod was the manager of the Olympic Games. He was very close to several of the Roman emperors. And through his political connections, managed to get himself made the king of the Jews. Which is pretty impressive, because he wasn't actually Jewish. He was half Arab. He certainly wasn't a descendant of David. He definitely shouldn't have sat upon the throne. He's a very illegitimate ruler. Because of that, he's totally and utterly paranoid. So he killed his mother, he killed his wife, and in successive goes, killed three of his sons. Anybody who was a threat to Herod, he would snuff out. There was a, um, one of the Roman emperors, Caesar Augustus, punned, in Greek, it works in Greek, um, that after he'd heard about the latest of those killings, he punned, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. It works in Greek, trust me. The point was, this is an absolutely ruthless kind of person, and most Jews hated him. He certainly shouldn't have been sat on the throne. And along come the Magi, and they go straight to him. And Jesus is obviously a threat to King Herod. If you just go through the passage, and you look at verse 2, they say, where's the real king? Where's the king of the Jews? If you look at verse 4, as the scriptures, uh, so they've, they've said that they're, they're coming for the Messiah. If you look at verse 6, when the scriptures are read out, they're looking for a ruler, uh, and it mentions a shepherd. That means, by the way, like David. In other words, the real one. Not an illegitimate king, but a real king. But Jesus isn't a threat to Herod in the way 
that he thinks. Jesus comes and he's vulnerable. So he's Israel's king, but he's also not as expected. And therefore, perhaps it's not surprising that Matthew highlights this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go. And so the inclusion of these people, these magi in this story, perhaps isn't as surprising. The most Jewish of gospels and then the most outrageous of characters turning up as soon as the story gets going. So just just think a little bit about their, their journey. Firstly, they were led by a star. Now, um, the fact that they set out at all is pretty impressive. There were still um, probably quite a lot of Jewish centers of learning in Persia and Babylon because a lot of Jews didn't come back after the exile. The exile went on for 70 years. Loads of them stayed there, and, and then seven generations later, or seven centuries later, a lot of people were still there, a lot of Jewish learning. And actually, the Jewish scriptures were reasonably well known throughout the ancient world, so that even... Um, Even Roman and pagan writers would comment often on a widespread belief that hope for the world would arise through a king of the Jews. A lot of people knew about this. So when they saw something in the heavens, they they set out. Now, it's really interesting how God would use something that made sense to them, even though it wasn't really commended in the Jewish religion. You know, the whole idea of astrology, it's not good, it's not true. You know, we're not meant to try and control things. We're not meant to seek from knowledge anywhere else other than through God. But God used the star to get them out on the journey. And I think God loved it that their heart was so strongly for a savior, for something to make a difference, for a change, that they packed their stuff up and they went on a 900-mile journey that probably took them several months. God loves that. But the thing is, The thing is, natural revelation, in other words, what we can learn about God, is there, but it's not enough. So like I mentioned earlier, in Romans chapter 1, it says the truth about God is made plain. So we can look at creation, and we're without excuse, because you can see something as you look at the heavens. If your heart is, is right, true, and open, you can see something of God. But it's not enough to lead you into a knowledge of God. So there's, there's natural revelation, but you need general, specific revelation as well. So you need specific revelation. God has to reveal himself for us to know him. It's possible to know about God, but not to be brought into a knowledge of God. There's general revelation, but there's not saving revelation. So God has to reveal himself to us through the prophets, written down for us in the scriptures. And that's what they needed. They were led by the star, but it wasn't going to bring them to Jesus. They needed a little bit more, and then what they got was the scriptures. And so they read the scriptures... And then what happened was, through what they heard in the scripture, what God had shown them as a sign in nature came together with what he'd written down for the ages. And the star then led them further, not just to Jerusalem, as the scriptures foretold, but to the very house where Jesus was. But the journey's not complete until you actually come to the Savior. Ultimately, those two things working together led them to Jesus. Now, When they see Jesus, they see the parents, but they worship the baby. And really, it's worth stepping back and saying, what's the meaning of this passage? Because often we preach it as, you know, rich people can also come to God. You know, they had a lot of money, and and the shepherds are poor, so that's an obvious contrast, isn't it? That's not, I don't think that's really the reason why this is in the Scripture. I think the reason it's in the Scripture is because in chapter 1, Matthew has gone overboard to say that 
Jesus is the king of the Jews. But to balance it immediately in chapter 2, he actually says, and by the way, he's the king of everybody. The king of the whole world. Don't write anybody off. There's a contrast being implied as well between the faith of the non-ethnic, the Magi, compared to the non-faith of the ethnic. The, the fact that they were willing to set out on so little evidence compared to the people that wouldn't even tra- travel six miles even though they had the scripture. He's saying that faith is found in surprising places. So they, I think actually they were surprised when they got there as well because I don't think they were seeking God. I think they came to pay their respects to a human ruler. When it says worship in verse 2, I don't think that they were worshipping as we would worship. But I think by verse 11, when it says worship again, I think they were. I think they found far more than they'd bargained on. And so it is so often when people have a little bit of faith and say, you know, I'm going to look into this. There's something here. I don't know what it is. There's something here. And they set out on what might feel like a 900-mile camel journey sometimes, intellectually. And when they start looking into it, it's so, so often people find far more than they thought. And if their journey leads them to the Savior, they find everything. So many of our Christmas stories, particularly the ones we're going to listen to in the next few weeks, many of them say this, don't rule yourself out. God is not ashamed to be your God. But actually this one, this one says don't rule anybody else out either. God's not ashamed to be their God. Don't ever look at the world and say they wouldn't be interested or they're beyond the pale or they're come, somehow they're enemies of God and of Christ. Everybody made in God's image is a person that Jesus came for. And so, you know, we've talked today about sharing our faith in the Christmas season, sharing invitations, inviting people to come to church. Invite unusual people. Invite the people you would least expect to want to come. Invite the people perhaps that you might even, if you're really, really honest, have a slight bias against, a slight prejudice against, maybe even not understand or even fear. You've got to invite those people if you really understand the Christmas gospel. Because the Christmas gospel says, Jesus has come for everyone. He is the saviour of the whole world. And to be honest, you know, most of us with our ethnic, racial, religious origins, most of us one day, centuries past, will be on the pale. Somebody came to us. Because somebody came to us and to our forefathers, we're included. We're accepted through Christ. Should we stand?